Hey everyone, welcome to episode 180 of the MTG Grindcast, the spikiest podcast in all of Central North Carolina. We are your hosts. I'm Chris Castor-Apple. With me is Lee McLeod. Hey, Lee. Hey, Chris. And we're also joined today by eternal expert Jarvis Yu to talk about some vintage with us today. Hey, what's up, everyone? Hey, Jarvis. How's it going? Oh, it's a Tuesday and it's cold, but we're heading into a cold set, Kaldheim. And we're also heading into a vintage tournament this coming weekend, so I'm excited for all of those things. It's also dark. This is this is MTG Grindcast after dark, because it's much later <laughs> than our, our normal recording time. <laughs> it is 9 p.m. If I drift off, just remember that I'm 32 and don't have you know control over that part of my life anymore. So <laughs> you just fall asleep all of a sudden. You're on the couch watching sports. It's it's a whole deal, right? <laughs> yeah, man, if the sports thing just sets in, that would be bizarre. <laughs> all right, so. We talked about Vintage some, we explored some lists and stuff on an earlier episode, but we didn't have really much of an analytical framework for the format besides like, oh, it looks like Moxes like make these changes <laughs> to what you can do in Magic the Gathering. Right. But Lee, I know you played some Vintage over the past week or so, and Jarvis, you're here to tell us what's up. So you want to give us an idea of like what a starting point would be? if you're trying to just like get a handle on what the vintage format is? Yeah, um, I would say that if you're trying to win the tournament, there's like five decks you really need to consider. And I think a lot of people agree that the actual best deck is Dredge. Um, Bizarre Baghdad is a unique effect, obviously, to this format. If if that card were legal in Legacy, it would, the format would not really resemble what it resembles right now. Bizarre Dredge is really a different animal. It's extremely powerful. If you don't have hate for it, you will get killed. There are a few exceptions to that rule, like a fast, like really fast combo sometimes runs it over, but nowadays Dredge tends to play counter magic of its own because it's kind of funny. The deck, it doesn't really matter what cards you put in the deck, so you can instantly play cards like Force of Will, Force of Negation, as long as your other blue count's high enough. Or even Force of Vigor is actually more common because you play cards like Shambling Shell, Gorgari Grave Troll, which is restricted, uh, which... It's kind of funny for people to look at because people look at the dredge deck and there's like, why is there only one grave troll? The actual answer is it's restricted. You're not allowed to play more than one. But you can play four Bazaar of Baghdad in the deck. Yeah, it's a kind of a cognitive dissonance, I would say. But you know, it's it's fine. Uh, it, it's just what the format is, and that's what Wizards wants it to be. So if you can play four Misha's Workshop, then you should be allowed to play for Bazaar of Baghdad, right? Like, that's just how that works. Yeah, S speaking of which, uh, I think Canister did a lot of good work on this version of Dredge that has picked up in popularity. Is straight, how do I put it? It's bug as listed on the Goldfish de designation. But what that actually means is people have moved back to Dredge instead of playing with Vengevines and uh, Basking Root Walls instead and Squeeze. So th there is a distinction there. And sometimes you'll occasionally see people play Vengevines and Hogak, plus Basking Root Wall, plus sometimes Krovik and Horror as backup squeeze. All these cards are like kind of obscure and don't see play anywhere, only because they serve to turn your Bizarre Baghdad into an actual draw engine, because you just pick up the creatures at either your end step or during your upkeep. Squee, notably one of my favorite cards of lifetime, kind of broken in a lot of ways because it is a recurring source of like discard bring it back to your hand discard bring it back to your hand 
occasionally you've seen it played in other formats with zombie infestation. I'm sure Lee remembers that, but here with Bizarre Baghdad, it's just, just a straight draw engine. Yeah, Bizarre is really, really warping to the format. <laughs> yes. It's kind of like when uh, Luris was legal in Legacy, how like the whole format was just right. all about companions. Yeah, Bizarre is kind of like that for Vintage, I think. Yeah. And speaking of Mishra's Workshop, I would say that's the number two deck. There's a few variants. Don't know if you've seen all of them. I have only played against the the Ravager style. Okay. I didn't play against any of the more like prisony element one, mm-hmm. and I don't know if there's a third one that you yeah. want to okay. talk about. So there's actually three. Um, Ravager Shops, the one you referred to. Ironically, a lot of people are claiming that Ravager is the worst card in the deck because people have cut Steel Overseers and stuff like that, so it's a little bit worse. I still think Ravager is probably good enough to play on Wraith because it lets you have that combo finish with Walking Blister, which is a really absurd effect. You, We've seen this with Hardened Scales and other formats. There's no Hardened Scales equivalent, but the difference is you have so much artifact mana and can power it out so quickly that maybe that your bliss is just enormous and you just need a few more points of damage to squeak through. Um, the second, there are two decks that are labeled as stacks on Goldfish. One of them contains four Leyline of the Void and four Helmova Beans, and also Mirage, Mirror, and Dark Depths. The other version just plays more lock pieces in those slots. So the reason to do this, I think, is there are certain matchups, say like Dredge, where if you just prison them more, it's not actually that good. What you actually want to do is kill them quickly instead. So that's why I think you've seen sort of a split off in the decks. And the other thing that Leyline lets you do is, well... You mize a Leyline versus Dredge or Underworld Breach. That's a huge hoop for them to jump through in game one. Whereas maybe if if you just have like a God Pharaoh statue or something in your hand, it's a little bit worse, you know. And yes, people do play that card. It's kind of funny. If that's a type artifact and it does anything remotely good, it's possible you've seen at some point in a Mishra's Workshop deck. Yeah, I remember when Slash Panther came out. That yeah, like that... a card people started playing, and it was like that's when I realized that oh, Mister's Workshop, you just can play whatever you want, and people figure out what's good later. Uh, did do you know the classic meme of Slash Pan- Panther beats Jace but loses a Porcelain Legionnaire, <laughs> which then loses to Jace? Yeah, that's like classic Magic the Gathering. Wait, it's Rock Paper Scissors, except it's just yeah. it's Tiger, Toilet Bowl Robot, and. Uh, one of the greatest planeswalkers of all time. I don't know. It's, it's clearly natural. Yeah, just the classic triangle. Like that's. I think they like had that in the the manual, like for Pokemon Red version, to show like type weaknesses. Like it's the exact same thing. <laughs> yeah, but um, specifically in the managers tournament, I think the advantage of playing Ghost stacks with Leyline is you'll know if your Leylines are good, and that's a huge advantage. I think. Because that just prevent presents you with another angle of attack. You're like, oh, my opponent's playing Dredge. I can just mulligan to a leyline or a really good hand, and either is likely to be good enough in game one. Whereas, like, the traditional stacks variant might have, like, a few more issues in that regard. I, I think them it's probably still fine for them. They can go for a tabernacle, which is, like, kind of an absurd effect, too, you know? Yeah, people sideboard that card for dredge, among other things. Uh, I think the uh, non-combo version tends to play tabernacle in the main deck for that reason. Hmm. Gotcha. That that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, definitely one like a, a really hard and specific example of the warping effect that open deck lists yep. tends to have on tournaments. Like even to the 
your your deck choice should be informed by mm -hmm. the fact that if if there are open deck lists or not, some decks actually get huge percentage bonuses by knowing that they can mulligan to a thing in their main deck. So that's that's kind of gigantic here. Yep. I do want to. Sorry, I I was looking at a couple of things, so I missed <laughs> if if when you were talking about like the thing that shows that Misha's Workshop is just obviously one of the most busted cards ever printed. It's the Chief of the Foundries that really, really do that for <laughs> me in the Arcbound Ravager version of the stack stacks, or of the shop stacks. This is just a three mana, two, three. Other artifact creatures you control get plus one, plus one. And like, you don't go that wide in these decks. You're not making like a bunch of tokens right. or anything like that. We're not doing hanger back walkers, but it's just like, it costs three. It gives like more power than most things. Like this is this is the one that is the wildest to me. Is vintage playable? Yeah, well, so that deck actually used to play Hangerback, but then people discovered it wasn't very good in the format. Mm -hmm. I think is the actual issue. A like not being able to use Workshop to actually charge up your Hangerback is like kind of a big deal. Uh, B, I think the number of source of plowshares and effects like that sort of rose to the top. So I think people sort of uh phased it out i think that card like if that card is good it probably means that there's not a lot of null rods and you're playing a lot of shop smears because where that card shines is in a shop smear because what actually happens is your arcbound ravager just becomes insane with hangerback walker right like mm. it's just obscene how many counters you can put on that and then probably onto a walking blister and then we all know from hardened scales they're probably dead somehow you just have to figure it out it's pretty cool. It's it's pretty easy too because in the in the, the shops version, you play the I don't know what it's called the three two that makes all your artifacts. A little Foundry cheaper. Inspector. People yeah, Inspector. off and on have called for bans on that card over the years, like which is kind of an absurd thing to say because it's mostly a three mana three two with a very marginal ability. Except in this format, what it actually does is it cancels out your spheres, so it's mm. actually like really 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 good. That's what surprised me when I was playing against the Roger deck. They had this year resistance in play and a foundry inspector they just kept, got to keep going and you're like it's that's not, not fair <laughs> that's not fair why can't i do that and then you realize oh if i could do that if i just played ravager shops yeah i i died actually pretty quickly after that <laughs> so <laughs> right. uh so that i think those are two big decks you can expect to say so goldfish sort of not very usefully has blue Xerox written down as a category. There are many flavors of this deck. We we noticed this as we did a like initial survey. Is there, there's like four different decks under the the Xerox label on Goldfish? I'll, I'll just go through a quick run. I don't want to. These decks are easier to understand, I think, because they look like decks from other formats, just with a slightly mm -hmm. better mana base or increase in speed. Maybe your cards are slightly better, but like. So there's a Jeskai Xerox deck. It's about what you would expect. Ancestral Recall, Source of Plowshares, uh, Force of Will, sometimes Force of Negation. Oftentimes you see Dreadhorde Arcanus, which makes a lot of sense, and Max Preordain. Remember, Brainstorm and Ponder are restricted, so your next best cantrip is Preordain, and then they max out on that. Um, and if you're running Dreadhorde Arcanus, then you have to run more one-mana cantrips than just a Recall, a Ponder, and a, a Brainstorm. And it's a taxing for and it gets Axiom Pro. <laughs> and they often play main deck Power Blast in some number and sometimes Fluster Storm. Uh, so you see a weird dichotomy with those cards because those cards are very bad versus Dredge and Shops, but people have to play some number because they're so good in the Blue Mirrors otherwise. 
Um, so the, just be on the lookout for those numbers. Mental misstep also notably pretty bad for stretch and shops. The only thing it counters in shops is actually soul ring. I don't know if you've noticed. Sometimes it counters like a random pithing needle that they sometimes have. Generally, it just the only target is either soul ring, sometimes mana vault, but it, shops generally doesn't play mana vault. And in dredge, I think the only thing you encounter with mental misstep is actually noxious revival. And the only reason they play that card is because it's a green card for force of vigor. And you can rebuy your bazaars if they get wastelanded. So it's kind of like a lot of weird moving parts. Um, but misstep, a leveling game. Kinda. Yeah, misstep not very good. You play a lot of bad cards, bad cards in these decks because when you have no mana, like what what can you do? There's not a lot of options, right? Like in in the dredge deck. Yeah, noxious revival is not a very good card by any stretch of the imagination. Generally, the only times you see that is some if something really weird is going on, or you want like a really situational like graveyard slash regrowth split card. I don't know. Like it, it's just weird to play that card most of the time, right? Yeah, I've only ever played it in Pyromancer Ascension. Pyromancer Ascension. Yeah, that's yeah. that's actually the only it, deck I could it, ever play that. Yeah, so that that's the first uh, Xerox deck. Don't forget the trick of using Noxious Survival to counter a Surgical Extraction. Like, that's always a thing. Uh, not really, but sure. <laughs> um, yeah, you, you can do that. Um, so that's Jeskai Xerox. You often see what Goldfish would call Teamer Xerox or Forkover Xerox, and sometimes Bug Xerox. Usually it's it's kind of weird. They usually list Bug Midrange, but not Bug Xerox. The, the classification gets kind of wonky at points. There is a four-color Xerox deck that has no white. Is basically Teamer splashing Deathrite. Has Renin Six, sometimes Collector Oof, like Underground Sea just to activate Deathrite, Lightning Bolt, uh, Wasteland. This is a very Jundy deck, I would say. And the reason they usually label it Xerox is that it has some number of preordains. I think the line's really blurred. It doesn't really matter. It's just a mid-range deck, you know, and. Uh, Bug Range is that deck, except it has no Renin 6. Sometimes plays Leavold. Also, the four-color deck sometimes plays Leavold as well. Yeah, these really look like legacy decks. You know, they're, they're like charged. a mix of, like, yeah. like Deathrite Shaman decks yeah. from, from from before that was banned mm -hmm. and, like, the current Blue Soup sort of decks just without <laughs> Astrolabe. But yeah. they're very legacy-like decks. The Xerox decks to me are really just trying to play good, honest magic where you also have a bunch good, of Good, honest magic. <laughs> yeah, like, where you also um, have Time Walk and Demonic well, Tutor. And... Yeah. Also, but Ar you're like trying to actually play the game of magic and attack sure, your opponent sure, and sure. stuff like that. Uh, I mean, Arcana's flashing back Ancestral Recall basically doesn't feel like playing magic, I would argue. Like, that's, <laughs> that's just some real nonsense. And I mean... I'm all for that. I think that is more like Magic than the, a lot of the other format. But, you know, that's the beauty of Vintage. It's sometimes nice to just, like, let it all, like, go to hell and see what can happen, right? It's actually kind of funny to call them Xerox decks at all. Because, like, the, the etymology of that name yes. is because people started realizing, like, oh, crap decks are way better when you put a bunch of cantrips in them and they started calling them xerox decks because so many of the games like they play out basically exactly the same you play your mm -hmm. cantrips you play your quarry on dryad you get it really big you counter their stuff you kill them with it uh so uh, in the vintage versions where you have yeah. 20 restricted cards that's just not actually the case the games don't play out exactly the same every time well i think the more preordains you put in your deck the more likely it is to happen which is why you typically see that label assigned to versions that play a lot of preordains 
which makes sense. And then Arcanist and oh, a bunch of removal spells. Actually, like Xerox, the first Xerox deck was Alan Cumber, and it was mono blue with foreshadow. I don't know if you know what that card is. For what? Foreshadow. It's the original predict. Oh, with foreshadow. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. The the with the does that have a slow trip? It's the slow trip like, predict. Text on it? It's the slow yeah, trip yeah. predict. And really honestly, like you can say a lot about Alan Cumber. He hasn't aged particularly well as a Hall of Famer. No offense to him. He thinking in that way to make a deck consistent, I think, was like out of the box revolutionary thinking at the time. Uh it was like a 17 land deck, but it just played only cantrips. So like he said, like, oh yeah, this is actually a 24 land deck in disguise. And a lot of people didn't understand what he meant, and then they played against it and they're like, oh, now we get it. Now it makes sense, right? Yeah, and and not only was it like revolutionary at the time, mm-hmm. but it's a thing that weirdly we had to rediscover multiple times. And in particular, I'm thinking of the fact that, like, we didn't play Ponder in Standard Fairies, which is right. just, like, mm-hmm. super, continues to be bizarre to me that, that it took so long to, like, figure out Ponder in Standard. I, I have a good story related to that. Frank Karsten, I don't know if you remember, made an averaged Fairies deck for Worlds that year. And in mm-hmm. his deck, the averaging worked out to, like, 0.75 Ponders, and he's like, yeah, I'm going to round that up to one Ponder. And round my 0.25 locks on one hammer up to one locks on Warhammer. And then, like, in the tournament, he couldn't decide whether he was supposed to keep with a ponder. So he rolled a die, said nothing to judge, and then decided whether or not to keep on the ponder or not. Because it was so, it was like a 50 50 decision to him or something like that. He couldn't decide. So he just let the die decide for him, which I think is really <laughs> funny. Honestly, I actually do this sometimes. I don't say it. I just look at my watch and decide, okay, it's a second's hand, even or odd. Oh, if it's this, I'll do that. If it's the other one, I'll do the other thing. What that actually does in a poker sense is it makes you unexploitable if people don't know what you're going to do at certain points. Yeah, if you have, I mean, like, that's absolutely true. If you have any true 50-50 decisions, like, you should be randomizing. Like, Mm -hmm. the optimal play is to randomize what you what you do in that spot i i've never done that I, <laughs> i'm uh, just never in a crisis of decision like that you, you've <laughs> never played poker online then is the actual thing you're saying because that's i have actually but it was oh. it was a very long time ago and it doesn't it doesn't come up in magic for me okay fair. where i don't know i just don't look at the game like that yeah and it's like i think you could you could go through many games of magic and just be like yeah i i didn't run into any 50-50 spots that entire time. And, and right? honestly, maybe I did, and I just made the wrong decision, or the right decision just like <laughs> instantly, and I just didn't think about it as sure. like a 50-50. Yeah. I was just ready to make a decision, even if it was wrong. Jarvis, I don't know if you ever saw my top eight match. I The top eight didn't open with Living End and was playing against Tron, and my opponent started out with, or playing against Eldrazi Tron, and my opponent started out with uh, Urza's Mine and Urza's Power Plant, so I got to grab the big Star City dice and roll them to decide which one I was killing with a Fulminator Mage. <laughs> and because it was on camera, it felt much better than what I do that normally. Oh, did, did, uh, was, were Cedric and Peace Holy covering? Yes. Oh, they and probably Cedric, lost it. Like Cedric appreciated it. It was, it was yeah. a nice moment for me. Yeah, I mean, technically there's like a weird leveling game, but if they know that it's a leveling game, then it gets weird, then you're supposed to randomize again. So, like, yeah, I, I think that's really funny. <laughs> I, I think generally you should randomize because I think most people don't put a lot of thought to that, really. 
I think I got more equity out of the like fun of the, the situation show than yeah. anything else I could have at that moment. Yeah, that's that's a nice one. So yeah, that's uh that's our digression from Xerox. Uh, right. The, actually, the Query and Dried thing that was Brian Kibler and Ben Rubin who came up with Miracle Grow. Mm-hmm. They they called it Grow because you were growing your dried, and Miracle Grow is a brand of you know like lawn grow fertilizer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the name of that. And then I think later uh, someone figured out that oh, if we just put meddling mage in the deck, then we have no bad matchups. Then they call it the sickest deck dot ever dot oh, deck. Do, do you remember this? Like naming. I remember hearing about. Yeah, that, de- yeah. deck naming convention in those days was really funny because it was basically just what we would call internet memes now, right? They were unhelpful names if you didn't already know exactly what was in the deck. Like yeah, yeah. Well, but it still is like that era of magic. Like, it, it, it gives a little bit of a, you know, mm-hmm. sepia tone filter to that. And it's like a, a different age of Magic the Gathering, where we played decks like full English breakfast and stuff. Oh, yeah. yeah we still haven't escaped it entirely, because we still have the stupid, like, Balastrad Spy combo decks called Oops All Spells, like, after breakfast cereal. <laughs> okay, but see, I actually really appreciate Oops All Spells beca- because... Not only does it harken back to like, oh man, like what a goofy name for a deck, but in that era of deck naming, the reason that like like decks got named after breakfasts or combo decks specifically got named after breakfasts, yeah, like Tricks and Fruity Pebbles and Full English, like like Full English yeah. Breakfast was like the parody deck name playing off of that concept, but uh, they got named after breakfast cereals, and I appreciate that we still have one combo deck named after a breakfast cereal that got named. I, I mean, I don't know. I guess Oops All Spells has been around for a while, and only now is it like actually a thing since it can play lands. But I, I, it just like warms my heart a little bit to to have that around. And then the Spaniards invented Southwood Breakfast. If you remember, Javi- that's like Javier Dominguez's pet deck. Because it was good and extended, like, in, like, 2004, 2005. And he occasionally plays in Legacy. Unfortunately, it's not very good anymore. But Sephwood Breakfast, instead of eating cereal, you're just eating Sephwoods for breakfast. (laughs) Delicious? Uh, I mean, they're, like, octopus. They're, like, squid. They're, like, calamari, right? That is a a Cephalid Illusionist Shuko combo deck for those of you who are not familiar with these. Yeah, Shuko came out in 2005, so it had to have been around 2005. Well, I think people played it before that, and they just had only the Nomad slash Encore package. And uh, I remember Grand Prix Boston, which was my first GP ever. Lucas Glavin should have won, but he was playing Cephalid Life because you could play with Vampiric Tutor. In that format, so he just had both the life combo and the selfhood combo in his deck, which is kind of like sickening if you think about it for so many reasons. Because that you're like, oh, does not take up too many slots, and you realize, wait, no, it doesn't, because people killed with sutured ghoul back then, so you had to have enough power and toughness in your deck to exile to the sutured ghoul. And the dragon breath is kind of free, like kind of not, but you had four brainstorm in your deck, and you had vamp tutor, and you had living wish. So it's like, I look at that deck, and I'm just like. Okay, the deck is beautiful. The deck also basically shows you why we can never unban Vamp Tutor in Legacy. Because like right. shit like this would happen. It's just so hard to account for all of the angles, and just you know, it's it's kind of inherently busted. So that that was my first GP. Unfortunately, you lost to Aluren, which is also a Legacy deck. 
in the finals because he forgot to cabal therapy himself for the suture goal b- before casting a reanimate and back then i guess you couldn't like undo things oh yeah yeah they're yeah. real real strict right yeah there. so and then look it was masashi oiso japanese pro back then from the old days it's like his english was kind of broken but he sat up in the chair he's like target and luke is like oh no where's my suture ghoul oh jeez. Yeah, that, yeah that is not how it works under the rules these days no it, it would it i mean as long as you haven't named the target nowadays i think anyone will let you control z or control z depending if you're british or not well it's part of right it's part of putting the spell on the stack yep. you have to declare targets pay costs and if you haven't done all of those things then you haven't put the spell on the stack magic rules used to be like i remember i have it back in the day when they when it was strict I would put a card on the table and not say anything and then realize I was doing something wrong and then just sigh and say, I'll reveal this to you and pick it back up because you could reveal cards in your hand whenever you wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't. I, wasn't it? I, I, I know that we're, we're like turning this into like old men reminiscing about <laughs> things story hour, yeah. but I do kind of like old men reminiscing about things story hour. <laughs> this is a vintage I, podcast, so it's allowed, I think. <laughs> And this is certainly before my time, mm-hmm. but wasn't there a big thing from like the first pro tour where like one of the players like kept getting warnings and like game losses for for uh cap yeah. like announcing spells before tapping their mana? I, I believe it was actually the second PT. The second, I don't remember the, the first one. Yeah. He got his qualifier in the finals. Yeah, I don't remember. And they awarded him the money after the fact, yep. like after everyone raised yeah. hell about it, because back then you couldn't announce spells and then tap your mana you had to do it explicitly tap your mana cast the spell and and now not only is it like allowed it's like that's definitely the way you should cast your spells in order to do them properly Mm -hmm. all right uh i think enough of that so that's xerox we we, can talk about vintage yeah we, we went on that huge digression i think the next most popular deck i think will be underworld breach or you know variations on it like I mentioned in our Facebook chat, there are two main variations on that deck. One plays Tinker, Bolsa Citadel. In order to play Tinker, I think you need like 9 to 10 artifacts that are not Bolsa Citadel. Because like, essentially you're splashing Tinker into your deck, right? And like, what's mm-hmm. the minimum number? I think I would be more comfortable if we were like 11 or 12, but then you account for the fact that there are tutors in your deck, so you can go get like a Mana Crypt or something. I think you're allowed to like go to 9 or 10. I think if it was just like a normal format with no tutors, I would say like 13 or 14 because it's like sort of like a birds of paradise math problem, right? Like you don't want to like not be able to cast it because it, when you cast Tinker for Citadel, your opponent usually dies. So like, yeah, they, it, they lose. So I, I mean, w- waiting on it because you don't have enough artifacts in your deck is kind of shooting yourself in the foot. Um, the other version doesn't play as many artifacts and then generally only plays Black Lotus, Lotus Petal, and the on-color Moxon, whatever, how many colors it is. Usually uh, two to four. Two to four. Um, sometimes you see four color, no white, and sometimes you see four color, no green. Oh, actually, sorry, you don't really see green. Occasionally you did see green for Ren and Six before, but I think that fell out of favor. So now you'll either see Esper, Grixis, or four color, no green. And um, if you see Esper, expect Monastery Mentor, expect Teferi 3. Uh, like Basically expect cards that are good in other formats and maybe like Swords of Plowshares in the sideboard. Or Wear Tear, which is a favorite of mine. 
Werther notably lining up well versus the person who's trying to leyline you and sphere you. If you just kill mm-hmm. both, that's a huge, that's like a great exchange for you, right? Like, then you're ahead. I actually did discover an MTGO bug where if I fused Werther, it would let me target Stone Coil Serpent, but it shouldn't. And th- then I realized, wait, I don't even want to kill that Stone Coil Serpent. I just want to kill your fucking sphere anyways. So, like, <laughs> the fact that it, it almost made me made the wrong play because I was confused that it let me target it. Because if you fuse Werther, it's a gold card, so it shouldn't let you target it. Um, uh, so, yeah. I honestly didn't even realize that was how that worked. Yeah, because okay. you're casting, you're only, it's only yeah. one card. You're not, yeah, like, casting two separate card cards. You're casting both, yeah. Well, it came up in standard with Turn Burn and Master of Waves. You mm. couldn't fuse Turn Burn on Master of Waves, like, trying to burn and turn. You could only right. turn it, which would kill all of the elementals, if I recall correctly. Yeah, it um, static. So. And if you had a second turn burn. Okay, yeah. then I guess you could kill it, but like that's a lot of I mean, usually the, yes. the, the, the turn was good enough, I, I would say. Um So yeah, Underworld Breach, I think you'll see a bunch of it. Like it's a pretty popular strategy, and it's one of the reasons the Golo Stacks deck has moved to Leyline, I think. Typically you'll see the wear tears, like I mentioned. Sometimes you'll see Sprite Dragon or Mana Gorger Hydra or some like backup one condition. That doesn't care about the graveyard. I think that's like less good than just playing Tinker Citadel. The disadvantage of Tinker Citadel is like sometimes you draw the Citadel and then it's like awful because you only have one brainstorm in your deck. The other disadvantage is like Tinker is notably pretty bad versus Pyroblast. There are a lot of Pyroblasts. It's not good versus Flusterstorm either. So you'll have to pick your spot to like try to get it in there safely, but think the upside of playing that and then getting to play like sideboard white steel colossus i think it's too huge to ignore um you'll see some people play sphinx of steelwind i was immediately off that plan the first time my opponent cast stone coil serpent and just blocked like oh this oh. is this is like <laughs> wait they like i spent two cards my thing should just win right like that's it you're two for wanting yourself like I, I don't know. Once the first time that happened, I'm like, I'm off it. Then I only play Blight Steel, even though it's Blight Steel is worse versus Dredge than Sphinx of the Steel one would be. Also, it's like worse versus like some bug variants that can't remove it, um, because all of their removal was like Assassin's Trophy, and that cannot touch Sphinx of the Steel one. Or Ogo, which is the same thing. Yeah, yeah. I can't, it, get, pro, I can't get Blight Steel Colossus either. So it. Well, I mean, Trophy can't, but Oko can. And Dak Faden, yeah. uh, Dak Faden can, can touch uh, Blightsteel, but not Sphinx mm-hmm. of the Steel one. Yeah, you really don't want to get your Blightsteel Colossus stolen by a Dak Faden. That's a disaster. I just don't side in Blightsteel versus any deck that I know is likely to have Dak. Like, I just... Of course. I, I do tinker for the Citadel, but I just expected to kill them such a large portion of the time that I'm willing to take that risk. And then, oh, if they if I fizzle by, like, hitting three lands in a row, that's fine. I'll take my lumps and just lose that game. But with uh, Sensei's Divining Top and Citadel, it becomes basically Yawgmoth's Bargain, so you can draw past all of the land clumps. In fact, it's often better than Yawgmoth's Bargain because you get a mana discount. You're just paying life to just cast spells for free. Whereas like, if you just drew all of those cards off Bargain, it was it would not be that likely that you, you could cast all of them. You know, It, it, it kind of reminds me of Mystic Forge, where you, you put this, the top oh, yeah. to draw the land, and then you pay your life to put... You're just, like, roundabout removing the top of your library. Well, yeah, it's just going in your hand, and sometimes it's better. Like, maybe you just draw, like, a bunch of Force of Wills, and you're like, oh, I'm at two, but 
Or I'm at three, but I have two forcefuls. You can't do anything on your turn, so it'd be fine. Or you cast you cast your one deck, and you get to discard the extra lands. Yeah. Or also, my favorite, not that it happens in any of these versions, is you Citadel them for ten permanents, cast Yogswell, recast everything, including the Citadel, and then Citadel them again. Uh, <laughs> this doesn't happen that often anymore. It happened more when I played with... Um, well, first off, you don't see that many Yogwills anymore because of the Leyline thing. Typically, you only see Yogwill in a very, very combo-centric version. So that means, like, less preordains, maybe, like, a Dark Ritual. Like, it has to be full-on combo for you to play Yogwill. Yeah, and, and I mean, you're already running Underworld Breach, which is covering, like, most of the territory that, that Yogwill is yeah, covering. Yeah, it's, it's kind of funny. These decks are, like... They're like, yeah, we're playing three Breach, two Brain Freeze, zero Yogwill, because we believe Underworld Breach is better in our deck than Yogmoth's Will is, which is quite a statement for a lot of reasons. It it doesn't exile the cards that you cast after it. I mean, you can it's a combo with, with Brain Freeze in a way that Yogwill just simply yep. isn't. So Yeah, it, and hey, uh, it's one tenth of the permits you need for Bowls of Citadel. Uh that perfect. It's it's not that easy to do that. Although like <laughs> I, th- I think definitely having the mentor backup plan in those decks or something similar to it, Managorja Hydra, makes a lot of sense because sometimes like you don't get access to your graveyard in game one because of the ley line. So w- what can you do? Well, Demonic Tutor for Monster Mentor is a pretty nice sidestep to that. Or Tinker for Citadel to generate enough resources to make a mentor lethal is also a pretty nice sidestep, in my opinion. Uh, I'm looking at a list right now that has a very different secondary plan here and that secondary plan is oath of druids oh uh, uh, yeah there's there's okay so i will say this there's a lot of ways you can hybridize the combo in vintage sometimes you'll see paradoxical oath not so popular anymore sometimes you'll see oath breach which is what you're looking at um sometimes you'll just see full-on combo oath with no breach but it has gristlebrand it has tendrils of agony and yogmutswell and memories journey so you can oath twice and shuffle with yogwill back in your deck upkeep with memories journey and like that's like if you cast yogwill with a with literally your entire deck in the graveyard it's not very difficult to kill your opponent right yeah and this this list that i'm looking at memories journey is an instant with flashback that lets you shuffle cards from your graveyard yeah. into your library so yes, you you mill your entire library, you shuffle in a breach or a yogwell, and then use that to cast your entire graveyard and and kill your opponent. It is it is kind of amazing how just there's so many combo pieces mm-hmm. in vintage that like you just get to put whatever peanut butter with whatever jelly together, and you try to like cover the weaknesses of one with the strengths of the other. I think ideally, mm-hmm. and. So, you know, like Oath of Druids getting Gristlebrand is a, like, to me, that is a neat and clever way to get around a lot of the hate that would be targeting your other comboing stuff. So, I like, this one just looks very cute to me, is all. Yeah, I mean, Oath into Gristlebrand is really good versus Leyline of the Void. Because, like, oh, you have Leyline? All right, attack you with Gristlebrand three times. Hope you don't go for Caracas in the meantime or naturally draw your Caracas. But, yeah, but I got a couple of shots. Yep. You know, I got seven or 14 looks at drawing Force of Will here. So. Right. One person I know really likes Paradoxical Breach is Bryant Cook. I think he's played that mm-hmm. off and on. I'm not sure if he still does that. I think 
no, no, no. When I played him in the showcase and I lost in round seven, I was like five and one. He was on Breach uh, with Paradox Squinch and Spliced In, which also means his tinkers are generally very reliable because once you put Paradoxical Outcome in your deck, you're you way... You run like 14 artifacts. Yeah, yeah, yeah you, you're way above the like necessary threshold, I think, to do it reliably. I actually tested that deck and we he and I like talk a lot about Vintage... The thing I don't like about Outcome is generally the way the deck is constructed, you have to have like 25 to 26 mana sources in your deck. And what that means versus a deck that has a lot of Pyroblasts, it's easy for you to flood and for them to just Pyroblast your expensive spells like Paradoxical, Tinker. Like those mm. those are those are not cheap cards to uh, resolve. And if you play against someone who has just a bunch of Pyroblasts and Flusters and heaven forbid like Null Rod or Collector Roof, it's really, really unpleasant. Like... So I, I feel like that deck has two, like, weaknesses that are sort of tough to resolve. But at the same time, like, the Paradoxical Outcome is a really powerful card. You cast it, it's like a ritual that draws you, like, five cards. It's just, like, kind of an absurd effect. So I get the appeal, you know? And I am actually level one, has been posting a lot about playing, like, just straight up Paradoxical Outcome. Right. Like mm-hmm. the old version in and you know doing just fine with it but i think it's fun like coincidentally his last post about it is three two and mana traders matches with the old 2020 po beat three non-pyroblast decks and lost to two pyroblast decks <laughs> so you know it sounds like it sounds like you got this one on the money well i mean i tested a lot of po and like the reason i moved away from it is all of the factors i listed i like i like playing the deck in fact the first time i saw the deck i was actually uh it was eternal weekend Reed and I had booked a hotel room together. It's like, uh, Reed told me, yeah, I'm playing Paradoxical Storm. I think the deck is broken. I'm like, oh, uh, I'll just play Monastery Mentors and Gushes. It's fine. And then he makes top eight and I go like seven, three or something. (laughs) And then I was like, oh, I guess I could have listened to you. Um, (laughs) I mean, I'm kind of stubborn sometimes. Like, to be fair you were allowed to play with as many mentors as you wanted then so i'm just like card is now restricted so mentor is a storm card essentially like it's and it pairs so naturally in just playing a control deck that i think it's just so nice but the time walk aspect makes it feel like a combo card i think is the reality of the matter and then like after he made top eight he's like yeah let's test legacy i'm like oh I think I can beat your burn deck with my four color death right shaman delver deck. Uh, five matches later, I decided I didn't want to play anymore. But then I made top eight of that <laughs> tournament, and he went like I don't know, like five three. Because uh, honestly, I I don't think burn is generally very good in legacy for a lot of reasons. Whereas my deck was actually broken because I got to play with death right shaman and Gitaxian probe and you know nonsense. Yeah, those cards are both banned now. So actually, I think uh, Sam Pardee in that tournament had a really amazing screenshot of me revealing abrupt decay to my delver when my only land was volcanic island and that's just like (laughs) it summarizes that deck perfectly and is really funny at the same time for obvious reasons yeah you're just trusting that you have a death rate shaman in play all the time like that's the whole point of that deck i mean you you cantrip into your mana sources that you need and everything's fine it'll be fine this is fine (laughs) dot gif I, I, I do like that. I, I feel like every time we talk about legacy, there's at least a subtle example of, oh, yeah, there's this deck. 
it was the whole point of it is it's really good against Delver, but it didn't really beat anything else. And like, that's just always there. And like, so like, here's burn. It's good against the Delver deck people are playing right now. It doesn't beat anything. Like, that's just like part of the pyramid of legacy at all times is deck. That's apparently good against Delver. doesn't beat anything else. And then people bring it to a tournament. Yeah. And the issue is like, maybe you play against Delver like five times and do well, but like, at the same time, what do you think your percentage is actually versus Delver in general? Right. It's probably not Are you that 60, high. 65? Like, if you're 65, if you I'd be against... thrilled. But if it's like 52 or 53, like I'm not so excited, right? Right. Beating Delver and losing to the other stuff just never... It's like, don't, fa don't fall into the trap. <laughs> and it's like the largest trap that I've ever... That, that exists in Legacy. It's there for every tournament. Well, it's like that in every format where, yeah. you know, you want to beat the best deck. It's just so prevalent in Legacy because Delver's been on top for, like, so long. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to name any names, but I know certain Lotus Box people are like, yeah, this Naya deck is insane. I look at it, and I'm like, this is this deck is bad. You've actually just made a worse lands deck, and I I mean, I think you're better versus Rogue, but how much better are you, actually? That Like, I don't know. And then, like, they just lose to combo decks because their deck is, their plan is to, like, cast Thalia and shit. And I'm like, well, what were you expecting? Like, shifting from black-green depths to that deck doesn't actually make your combo matchup better. It makes your fair matchups better. It actually makes your combo matchup significantly worse because you don't have Urborg. You don't have Urborg, Hexmage, Thoughtseize, you know, get them dead. You, like... You're baking like, a better fair deck. The ability to punk them out because you have all these Knights of the Reliquary in your deck. Yeah, and I actually, I've played against that deck a lot in testing for that, like, Grand Prix Atlanta, which I did make top eight, and lost to Burn. Let's not say anything about that. <laughs> I'm a little bit salty about that one. If Oko had been weak at that point, I do not believe I would have lost to Burn either. So, but uh, that's a whole different jar. I, well, I, perhaps that person would not have been playing Burn in that tournament. Apparently that person always plays way. Burn, so I somehow doubt that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you might not have played them at that point in the tournament. Oh, then. sure, sure. But yeah, all I'm saying is like, I don't know, people have this weird tendency that I think if you play against worse Delver players, they don't really understand sometimes when they're supposed to do certain things because there's a lot of cantripping in the deck. And like, I don't know if you've played with a cantrip deck, there are 9,000 micro decisions you can make at almost any point, and they severely affect the... It's like sort of a cascading effect, because you cast the first one, you find some more. You have to decide, okay, first off, am I going to keep them? Am I going to have time? Second off, which one should I cast on what turns? Third off, should I actually wait on casting them because I expect the game to go longer and I need to see what else I need? It's just like, I think that sort of thing sort of you can't really train someone to do it. They just have to put in the reps or be willing to like take lessons, which I do offer. I do offer lessons if anyone wants to do that. But it it's just, it, there's a lot of experience that goes into it. I've been playing Legacy off and on since like 2005. That's 15 years. I don't think a lot of people can replicate that without having played just as long or been willing to work like, you know, play like 40 hours a week for like, two years or something like that you know it, mm -hmm. you see what i'm saying yeah yeah so yeah i guess that's my rant on your deck does not actually beat delver unless if you not draw me it's it's an important part of like figuring legacy out is understanding the relationship your deck has with delver and the rest of the format i think 
Yeah. I mean, there there was one time where I believed Lands beat Delver like pretty handily, and I sort of proved it repeatedly. And then it stopped doing that. I'm like, oh, I don't want to do this anymore. Like, well, what's the point? Like, my deck is less consistent than yours, and I'm not beating you anymore. Why should I even bother with this? It's it's a waste of time. And I I am happy to put my tabernacle back into the sleeve where it belongs. Other people have not accepted that, I think, to their... You know, great for them. If they enjoy playing the deck, that's great. I think from purely, purely a winning perspective, that's probably a mistake. But, you know, for, for some people, playing a deck you enjoy is more important, you know? I do, yeah. <laughs> I, I know. I've seen some of the decks you play. <laughs> some of them are really I'm... cool, and sometimes you do pick a good deck. I think you were one of the KCI people in the beginning, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh I, I was too. I actually didn't understand a lot of the, like, weird, like mana payment like windows but i also like determined through testing that like that shit didn't actually matter like 99 percent of the time so i'm just like all right i'm just gonna play like i play high tide which is draw my cards until they're dead and if they want to concede fine if they don't want to concede i'm happy to just sit here for like five minutes killing you let me let me you know tangent this tangent i I have a story about the mana payment thing I, i think i've told chris but i don't think you've heard it uh i was at like a local iq with KCI. And this was before Matt Nassa talked to any GPs with the deck at all. Right. So my my version was not very good or anything, but I, I you had the you know, normal KCI stuff. And I realized that I'm pretty sure I can sacrifice Mirror Retriever while paying for like a something else and get it back. Like I'm pretty sure, but I'm not positive because no one no one's explained this to me yet. It's not hit the big stage. So I call a judge over, and I walk him through what I want to do, and he doesn't get it. So I walk through it again, and he's like, no, you can't do that. And I'm like, well, I'm not too sure, so I'll believe you. And I think, I I don't remember if I won or lost that match, but like a couple weeks later, Matt Nastop made the GP and explained that, and I'm like, I I knew it! (laughs) I felt so vindicated. Yeah, I think Matt Ness probably consulted a more reliable judge who actually did understand what he was trying to say. I, I actually did play KCI in one SCG NV. I think I went 6-2, and two, and one of my opponents had a Chalice on 0 and a Chalice on 1 and was like, yeah, this is good enough to beat you. I'm like, nope. no, it's not. It really isn't. And I just tapped my Inventor's Fair and my Grove of the Burn Willows for Colorless Colorless, play Engineered Explosives, my opponent's like, okay, so you have a EE with two counters on it? I'm like, no, I have an EE oh, with zero no, counters sir. on it. And my opponent was very sad after that. Uh, I don't remember. I don't think Karn 4 was printed yet, so that would have been like the actual bane. I, I actually am skeptical that KCI would be as good as it is right now, even if Opal were legal and like Collector Oof and Karn and shit. Like, I think yeah, maybe Karn, the deck Collector is... Collector Oof, Force of Vigor, and Force of Negation. Yeah. I'm not convinced the deck would be good. I think some people would play it and try to solve these problems with, like defense grids and shit. I'm not sure that's a battle you want to fight, but that's a that's a whole other can of worms. I don't think they'll unban it because egg-style decks, I think they've shown a pretty big willingness to try to keep them out of the format if possible because it's not fun for one person a large portion of the time. Sure, I get that. Um, so yeah, that's my KCI story. And, uh, where were we in the vintage tat? I, I don't even remember anymore. Well, we were talking about the differences between Underworld Breach decks, and I did not like, 
I, I didn't play the hybrid hybridized version outcome mm-hmm. and breach because that just seemed like way too weak to too many things mm. and then we'd explain that for a little bit and that's where we are now yeah so the, there's a bunch of like hybridized decks i actually saw a uh doomsday deck that had tinker citadel and a small tendrils package in it and i think that's kind of cool too i i think that makes the deck easier to play but i'm not sure it's actually better than just playing straight doomsday which discover n I don't know their real name. I know they're Japanese, and I know all the tournaments they win are really late for them, and they still win. So it's just like, okay, this person's clearly like god tier <laughs> with the deck, and no one can talk to them because I, d- I don't think their English is like amazing or anything, like or the time zones don't line up or whatever it is. I know they're very impressive. I've played against them a few times. I think they play extremely well. They know their deck inside out and they are the reason i think doomsday looks so good and has some people playing it i'm not sure the other people playing the deck are anywhere near as good as this person um even though i do think thassa's oracle made the deck so much easier to play so uh to, to counterbalance that i think a lot of the time when you cast doomsday it's not as bad as it used to be but if you want to cover literally all of the corner cases and think it all out that actually is still relatively difficult because you only got five cards left, and you have to figure out how to win if your opponent has stuff. <laughs> yeah, and sometimes you get into a... I know in the Legacy version, sometimes it's actually correct to put a second Doomsday into your pile to reset in case if things go awry. I've not been able to figure that one out either, so I just don't play the deck, and I just take my wins versus them when I can. Or I take my losses when I do, which, you know, happens sometimes. But I think, <laughs> you know... Wasteland, Lightning Bolt, Force of Negation, Force of Wolves is generally pretty good in that matchup. Yeah, I mean, it definitely used to be, like, the vast majority of your Doomsdays, you would have to think about how you were Mm -hmm. doing it. And now, a solid, like, the majority of your Doomsdays, you just get to do card-drawing mana, Thassa's Oracle, and, like, that, that is a huge part of the renaissance of the deck, is it's just much more accessible to actually win the game after resolving doomsday so i actually think this took well uh now the vintage version plays four street wraith two thousand oracle i think there was actually a point where it only played like three street wraith and one oracle then people realized there were too many corner cases that would come up if you didn't like reconfigure the other way i actually think this is a lot like this reduces the number of corner cases that actually do cause you to lose like mm-hmm. sort of modern ad nauseum style which I played against that deck so much, and I, even when people claim it's well positioned, I'm like, I do not believe this deck is fundamentally sound because I've beaten it in so many weird scenarios. At at a team GP, my teammate beat them as affinity because he went above forty life with his vault scourge. I'm like, what? Wait, what the (laughs) fuck is the point of your deck? Like your combo deck, you can't beat my like my teammate going to forty life because of vault scourge. Like I I don't understand. So yeah, I'm I'm pretty pro like trying to eliminate all the stupid corner cases. It, to be fair, the modern ad nauseum deck now has Thassa's Oracle, so we can get past that shit too. Thassa's Oracle really just showing its true colors. It's just insanely like good when convert these decks. Jarvis, uh, did I ever tell you about my match against ad nauseum, where game one my opponent just had me absolutely dead to rights? Like my deck was not <laughs> capable of beating them game one. Yeah. Uh, and then, and he's about to combo off. He's got everything. And then he just goes, spoils, uh, for 
uh, for like Angel's Grace or something like that. Oh no! And then he just straight up exiles uh, Lightning Storm and Lab. This was before Thassa's Oracle, right, right. but he, or, or it was Jace or whatever at that point. So he just exiles Lightning Storm, exiles Jace, and, and then, then you, just you scoops up his yeah. cards. And you're just like you're looking at them. You're like, oh, I certainly got lucky there. But also maybe they didn't need to cast Spells of the Vault. So yeah, I was I, I was watching this game. It's the game I'm thinking of. I've watched this happen to you, so it has to be the same game. Yes, it's the same. You were watching. <laughs> so I was watching this, and the opponent's like an ad nauseum player. They know their deck, so they're doing everything really quickly. So they cast spoils, they exile, 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 then they scoop the wall up and concede. And Chris is just kind of there, well, huh? <laughs> what happened? <laughs> I, I didn't have time to like understand what had happened. I saw... I saw the Jace. I didn't. I hadn't even seen the Lightning Storm at that point. I was just like, mm-hmm. "Is Jace the only like? What's what's happening? It's like, where are you going? What's what's wrong?" <laughs> yeah. The the logical conclusion is they exiled both of their one cons because back then that didn't. Uh, speaking of spoils of the vault, there's another way that this deck can win, which is you can play Thassa's Oracle, put the trigger on the stack, cast Demonic Consultation, and name like yeah, whatever. I don't know what your favorite card is like. Abandoned Onward Hope to is a classic. Is my Play of the game is a classic. Uh, that's like from Conspiracy or something. I'm a fan of Bonus Round because I think that card's really sweet. And it's like, oh, we're going to the Bonus Round where I've already won a game. You know, I I I always name Onward to Victory ever since it's been played. <laughs> that that's a nice one. That's the uh, Amon Kit uh, yeah, white slash red card aftermath mm-hmm. card. Yeah, I have no idea what it actually does, but I know it has... Oh, I can tell you what it does. It gives you plus X plus O on the white side, and it's an instant. On the other side, it's two and a red sorcery. That's the aftermath part. It gives the creature double strike. So the idea is you can like quadruple your power, but half of it is instant and half of it's sorcery, so it doesn't really work that well, unless you have an evasive creature. (laughs) And I know this because I played so many Ammon drafts before uh, whatever premier level event that I wanted to do, you know. <laughs> yeah, that one was not in uh, Amonkhet Remastered, was it? I think it was, actually, but it's not a very good card, so no one played yeah. it. Maybe I just didn't notice it in the format. Oh, another sweet thing about the Doomsday deck is it plays the weirdest cards in the sideboard. Uh, sometimes you'll see a Tasker in the sideboard. The version I'm looking at right now has an opposition agent and a library in the sideboard. Library of Alexandria, not Sylvan Library. Yeah. And, and there's a ton of Steel Sabotage in the sideboard. Yeah, it's... I think it's just because of mana efficiency. It's like the best card that they can have for shops. It's like good versus spheres because it only costs you two to cast under one sphere instead of... If you go to like Hercules Recall, the issue is sometimes it costs too much if they have two spheres out and then it like gets out of control, you know? And you like you die to like... Or, Phyrexian Revoker or something. Like, you can't cast the first one, so then they cast their one Lodestone Golem, they drew it, and you all of a sudden can't cast it again. This person's playing one portent. What the... I don't... Oh my god. I I don't know. I'm sure they have a reason. I guess it's probably the next best cantrip after... They're max on Preordain. They have four Preordain. Portent's a weird one. (laughs) This is the slow trip ponder now. But you can also target your opponent with it if you, if you really need to. I I have a really funny story about that. If you want to hear one, I do. Um, that's what this that's what this episode is all about. Uh, I'm playing like a legacy side event at GP. It's like Friday, and I'm like playing round one. I've gone to four cards in game three versus like some snow control deck, and I scry and keep on top, and they portent targeting me. 
and my the card I had left on top was my only land, so I have to force a will this board, and otherwise they're just going to shuffle my land away. <laughs> and then I draw the land, cast a cantrip. Uh, they miss their second land, say go. I top deck wasteland, waste them, and seven turns later they've died to my four card hand because they portented me. They portent themselves. I don't think I ever counter it there really because i think that's just a sphere of resources but since i know it's targeting me i have to counter it <laughs> that's and pretty funny i'm just like wow this person really like obviously it's so appealing to just port in your opponent there but i think if you don't have the second land lined up you should just probably just play it safe and just how much help do you need to beat an opponent four cards like really well the answer is their deck has sorts of posture so i think the answer is not that much but they decide <laughs> like yeah we're just gonna get you and i'm like no like can't really let that go because my hand literally has no lands in it. it it's just a funny game uh i would estimate i'm like under like 0.1 percent to win from that scenario obviously but you know sometimes cards line up perfectly and and forced plays just happen directly in your favor oh yeah I, I was forced to make the correct play every there every time i don't i mean i think if they pour in themselves it's also correct for me not to force it obviously so yeah it, and then just, you probably just lose that game almost every time i, I think so land too yeah, I, I I think so. Sometimes, uh, sorry, and back to the doomsday thing here. It's pretty easy to construct a doomsday pile here. I think the most common pile is like Ancestral Recall, um, Black Lotus, Thassa's Oracle, and pick some disruption. If your Ancestral Recall is gone, maybe it got like Force Negations or something, you can take Gush instead, which speeds you up as well. But that only works if you have two islands. Or you can just put like three street rates or four street rates and that's his oracle if you think you don't really have to worry about anything and just have to go for speed. Like, as I said, I think the fourth street rate made like weird piles like that a lot easier and, you know, just playing the deck is a lot easier now. Black Lotus obviously helps so much. Like, I, I'm not going to dice words. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the, the piles in the Vintage Doomsday deck are a lot cleaner than the piles in the mm -hmm. Legacy Doomsday deck, even now. Like, you have to do weird Lion's Eye Diamond stuff or whatever with the Legacy version, and you just don't have to do that in this one. Right. What is this? I hadn't seen this deck before. I was looking at the Super Qualifier. This Bant, like, Archon of Emeria deck? Yeah, so I was going to get to that. Apparently, it's one of the... I think it's one of the Zoomers built it. I'm going to say Zoomer, like... I don't actually know who built it, but that's what I heard on the Twitterverse. Uh, it's predicated on the idea that Archon of Amir is a really annoying card for a bunch of decks to play against. Like, Underworld Breach is not thrilled about that card. Like, even decks, like, Mishra's Workshop's not thrilled to see that card. There's just a lot of decks that are, like, kind of inhibited by it. So I this think is it, a, Archon of Amiria, for those of you who don't, yeah. haven't paid attention to this card, is two and a white flying two three each player can't cast more than one spell each turn and non-basic lands your opponent's control enter the battlefield tap i think in the past there have been decks like this and they're usually called bant fish or noble fish my friend's name is mike noble he's one of the first people to play a deck like this he sort of claims that the noble is half his last name and half noble hierarch and it, <laughs> you, you will see like noble hierarch in a lot of these decks because it's just such a good card for a strategy like this like the Exalted matters, the mana ramp matters. You're playing it Collector Oof, so your Moxen are going to be dead after you have Oof in play. So like having Mana Exhortion in that regard matters. Also, you have a ton of 3-drops in this deck. I don't know if you looked at a 3-drop slot. There's 4 Archon, a Hole Breacher, and 3 Okos. That's a lot of 3-drops, so having 
the one to three dynamic that Fires of Yavamaya used to have is like a big deal here. There's like some spell quellers in this other version that's uh, in third. Oh, interesting. Uh, so even not... more three drops in that one. Oh, it yeah, they're just choosing what their favorite three drops. It's like whatever. Uh, these decks don't play that many cantrips. The idea is they try to like have enough like annoying hate bears that they don't have to cast a lot of cantrips. I mean, they still play like Ancestral Recall and like brainstorm and ponder i guess they play the restricted ones but they don't they don't typically play like preordain because that's not that good with our kind of emiria and stuff like that you know i i'm also seeing this is in the the vintage league dump which has very few decks in it not a lot of people play in the vintage leagues but i'm seeing a mono white uh archon of emiria like death and taxes style deck oh d- does it have luminarch aspirant Oh yeah, this has four yeah, aspirants in it. I've seen this deck. There are versions of this deck that play Thought Nuts here and Reality Smasher as well. Um, oh man, no quicker way to make me not want to play a deck in a format. Yeah, I don't know. Like all these decks are sort of predicated on the same idea that if you have enough like Glock, be- they're like they're sort of riffs on Ravager Shops, but instead of playing Mishra's Workshop and all of the artifacts, you try to play things that don't die to like Force of Vigor and like. I don't know, Energy Flux or Kataki or Shattering Spree. So you just try to overload them on non-artifact threats. It's sort of the same philosophy, I think, just slightly different. Uh, personally, I would just rather play with the land that taps for three every turn and just, like, take my lumps. <laughs> but I, I do understand the appeal to a deck like that, personally. Yeah, I mean, it does feel like this deck really wants... I mean... Hands with a mox in this deck definitely just seem a million times better than if you miss on a mox and you, right. like you, then you're casting especially on the play like you're casting turn one Thalia and then that is really really good but if you're on the draw or you don't have a mox or God forbid both then like I guess you just on the draw you you probably mulligan most hands without a mox in them but. I imagine Lee remembers this, but these decks typically play Glowrider over Vryn Wingmare. Because oh. they share... For, well, first oh, off, they share a creature type. Most importantly, the creature type is human, even though the original Glowrider on it only says Cleric, if you remember that. Yeah, because Onslaught didn't have creature types. Or didn't well, it, human wasn't a creature type. Right, it wasn't. It, it and was, did you know, by the way, there's all of the like white humany humans in onslaught have all been errata to be humans yep except for the one with amplify although amplify got uh errated as i think we talked about on a different episode amplify got errated to not work like on any creature type of the thing it's like just the soldier part or something no it's uh, not is it yeah it's it's like it got changed so like daru stinger is not just like a completely that's the card, card i was thinking of daru stinger was also just insane in the limited format the first time around I have to check this because yeah, that... it's a weird errata that's no, no, it's me it's the I same play. card. Like Darius Stinger oh is not an errata it... at all. Amplify works the same. It's just specifically not a human like every other Daru. Darius Stinger is only a soldier. Yeah, Darius Stinger is only a soldier. So that's probably why it's. A... Let me look at um. Actually, let me advance search for Amplify. Yeah, I'm doing because that too. It's such a weird mechanic. I don't think they would print that sort of mechanic anymore. See. Even Warhawk has Amplify. It's a bird soldier, but in the reminder text, it says bird and slash horse soldier on it. Right. 
So I think it does work for all creature types. So I think it it's just the thing for me is that like Daru Stinger is not a human. And I'm co- I was pretty confident that Daru Stinger became a human for some period but of it time didn't. and is no longer a human is is maybe the the thing that I'm thinking of. So they updated all of this in Mirrodin. That was like the the block after onslaught. And I guess someone at Wizards just said, no, I think Daru Stinger would be much too powerful as a human. <laughs> Yeah, so they made that call. He's drafting some like triple legions or whatever. <laughs> yeah. I I still find it funny that Arcbound Ravager is a beast, which does work with some of the onslaught cards, but still doesn't have beast written on it. And to this day, most people who play Arcbound Ravager just assume it's a construct because why wouldn't Arcbound be a construct? Except us us old fogies know that <laughs> it's a beast for God knows what reason. So you can sack it to Ravnus Bayoth is the answer. There's like a, uh, one of the, most of the constructs with modular are constructs. There's like the six mana three, three fear. That's a horror. Oh, right. (laughs) That's Arcbound Fiend, I believe. Yeah. I drafted a lot of Mirrodin as well. That was one of my favorite sets to draft. The, the full block. I didn't much like a triple Mirrodin. Uh, I think people said MMD was pretty good too. I didn't have enough experience with that. Yeah. So maybe. I think the trouble with Triple Mirrodin were the artifact lands are really high Yeah, they're way too good. You could play like 13 land decks. Yeah, it was sort of a not fun way to draft the format if you weren't in the know. Like, Grab the Reins was an insta-first pick, and like, uh, like the artifact lands were really high picks too, except it wasn't clear until you were a more skilled drafter to realize that. And that's just not a fun way for most people to play a format, I think. Which is, I think, one of the maybe one of the issues with uh, Kaldheim is going to be that Snowlands are much higher picks than people realize, because I've seen a lot of these cards have like double or triple snow as activation costs, and like that's not reasonable unless you have like ten of those in your deck. Really, like it's just impossible. I think. Yeah, I don't know if the result of that is like pick Snowlands high, because even if you do pick Snowlands highly, like if 10 of your high picks are on Snowlands, like, are you really getting the payoffs that have made that worth it? That seems really, really difficult. Yeah, I don't it, know. It's, it's going to be a balancing factor for that, because mm-hmm. I, I haven't looked at the set with Leonard in mind mm-hmm. yet, but I know with, like, Modern Horizons, there were some really good snow payoffs in that set. Oh, so there Snowlands were. were really, like, you picked them highly and you were fine mm-hmm. with it. And I don't know if Kaldheim's going to be like that yet. I, I will be looking forward to figuring that out because I plan on drafting this set quite a bit. Same here. Uh, I'm going to yeah, be a I, boomer and uh, assemble moto sets to be sent to my house. I did that for uh, Zendikar Rising. I have three regulars and one foil at my house right now. I did it for set before that. I have three of that. And I don't know. I've, I've just been stocking up because my theory is during COVID, all these sets are way under supply. So once people have to play again, those cards are going to actually be insanely expensive in paper. Probably. I haven't bought cards in so long that yeah, like, exactly. when I have to go back, I'm just going to need to buy whatever deck that I play. <laughs> so I bought Teamer colored lands, the fancy versions. Oh my gosh. Because, you know, I've, I've got to be playing those at some point. Those <laughs> colors don't get worse. <laughs> so one thing that is, and, you know, we're just going to like way far astray here, but I'm just thinking stuff out loud. One thing that is in favor of the snow stuff in Kaldheim is you not only have the snow basics in each pack, but the duels are common. So mm-hmm. there's actually a lot of snow lands going around, sure. which 
kind of offsets the like I've got to like second pick my Snowlands to well, some extent. Have well, they released information whether Snowlands replace a basic or not? They do replace the basic, so that's the issue. It you either open a basic or or a snow duel. Uh, or snow like, duel. Oh, yes. Okay. So gotcha. the, you have the like same limitation as you did in both Cold Snap and uh, Modern Horizons, which means if you stop seeing Snowlands by fourth pick, and your first pick was like a snow like triple activate cost, you, you know there might be issues. Like, yeah. it, it it's it's kind of unpleasant. I think towards the end of that, oh, towards the end of Horizons, when people also knew snow was. Like great and blueback ninjas was great. My actual default deck was red black. It was just like all of the goblins. versions of red black were actually good. Red black goblins was the best, but red black sacrifice was fine. And like just the red black commons were just so good that it didn't really matter what version you were. So I loved uh, that Bogarden uh, two two that became a dragon. He's like one of my favorite cards. Bogarden uh, fireheart or Bogarden yeah. something. Uh, I actually have a funny story about that. Is after GPCL, the one I mentioned, um, I actually went to Andrew Brown's house and Dan Muster and Michael Majors. Uh, they're they're all they were all Watsi employees, but Andrew Brown was part of East West Bowl, so we actually had a three v three former East West Bowl uh, versus um, Watsi employees draft. All three people on our team ended up red black, but we we're different versions of red black. So we easily bashed their faces in, even though like <laughs> you you would think that if three people were all the same color combination in a team draft, it would actually be really negative. But we were looking for different like synergy cards that made our decks tick. There was a little bit of overlap, like the good removal spells are still like a premium pick in all of the versions, but we had different versions and we all we just like I think we like beat them like. 7-2 or something like that. I don't know. It was it was really not close. So uh, I think it's funny. It's just... I, I think people sometimes, especially nowadays, color pairs don't matter as much as what type of deck you are drafting within those color pairs. Just have a vision for a deck. Yeah, a set like Modern Horizons has so such deep different decks you could do yep. in colors. Whereas like some sets like Zendikar Rising, uh, some color pairs don't really have that much going on for them. Yeah, yeah, it kind of directly scales with the power level the of the set, yeah. too. Yeah. Uh, I actually think in Zendikar Rising, a few decks had a bunch of different offshoots, but it was mostly the ones that could play, like, a lot of... Um, Party. What are the cards? Like, Stonework Pack Beast, I think, correlated to letting you do a lot of weird yeah, stuff. Veteran Adventurer sort of also did. I think Green, if you wanted to be, like party-ish maybe made it easier but the problem in my experience was green was not very good in the format i basically never drafted green unless i opened a busted green uncommon or rare <laughs> i don't know if, uh, how you drafted the format that was basically my mo i was not going to do that um i think again for me red black all of the commons were great and you could draft party you could draft like weird wizard sub theme you could draft a rogue sub theme that I was like red black almost every draft near the end of the format or blue red hyper aggro chilling trap wizards. There, there's supposed to be a small tribal component in Kaldheim. I saw that. Yeah. Like, I think they're I think they're trying to do that for all the sets this year. That's my guess. Right. If they want to have like party stuff be relevant all the year. Yeah, but it's kind of weird because like this set has berserkers. I'm like yeah, that's, that's the weirdest thing. What, like like seriously, if you wanted to push party from Zendikar Rising. Then you make berserkers. I'm like, then 
it, it kind of defeats the point, right? Like, if can the elves just... just be warriors or rogues? Why are they berserkers? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I would have been happier. Like, it'd be worse for the mythology because I think Norse mythology does yeah. canonically have berserkers. So that makes sense from that standpoint. But the problem is, from a mechanical standpoint, it doesn't work very well from a mechanic you just pushed in a earlier set. Um, and, and are bringing back in a couple of sets. Did they sure. confirm that in Strixhaven? No, in, in the D&D set, they're definitely going to have party. Oh, the the D&D set. Forgotten Realms, yeah. Uh, I see. That's really not great either. But, <laughs> you know, it, it is what it is. And, I mean, I, I think the set looks cool. I mean, I am personally glad that I think the power level did get toned down a little bit. It really does look like that. Maybe... So, the issue I had was people have been complaining about the power level stuff for about 1.5 years but the actual issue is most of this when war of the spark came out with the sets we see now we're already like kind of close to the completion by that point or we're just starting to be done so it it would always take one to 1.5 years to cycle out all of the problems and you just have to like struggle through it it I actually noticed this phenomenon first when Chris Cox took over. It was about 1.5 years from when he took over to War of the Spark being released. So I have a theory that he is to blame for a lot of this from the revenue Hasbro <laughs> side. And now we're finally getting to the other side of the tunnel. And I'm just hoping that it, it is going to work out for the best, you know? Right. I hope so too. <laughs> but, and, and every time that we've had one of these like power down scenarios like there definitely is a period where it is tough to get really excited about the new cards because you know right now we've got throne of eldraine legal and standard so why why am i gonna play like 95 percent of the cards in this set like i can play bone crusher giant instead why would i play carnage tyrant when i can just play some kaladesh cards right yeah i think ixalan was is a pretty egregious example i mean the same thing's yeah. happening right but ixalan was just so boring because there's just not that many words on the card Whereas yes, I think they've got a lot of words on these cards, so they're yes. cool even if they're not quite up to the power level that we need right now. Right. Um, I actually described this phenomenon as Mercadian Masks was the first example, mm-hmm. although it turned out there were some issues and that's it. Not as many as uh, Urza Block, for sure. Don't, don't get me wrong. Uh, the second example was actually Champions of Kamigawa after Mirrodin. I believe. And the third example was obviously Ixalan. So now I'm just like, yeah, we're on Max 4.0, and then half the people are like, what the hell are you talking about? I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm like, this is actually the fourth time that this has happened in Magic's history. Sometimes they have to relearn the lesson. I wish they didn't, but you know, power creep is a thing. Yeah, and each time that has happened, the block that has like set that off has become like a universally reviled like portion of magic's history like you know there's some interesting stuff in masks but you know like prophecy is one of the worst sets of all time oh yeah and there was just a bunch of like really bad stuff about that standard and block format as well kamigawa i think gets a lot of undeserved hate that mostly comes from like well we were going to keep playing with our mirrodin cards while this isn't standard uh, and then, so just like a lot of the cards didn't get an opportunity to stand well, out. Well, and then Ravnica came out right after, just one of the best at the like blocks of all time at that time. Right, right, exactly. So it's just sandwiched <laughs> between like 
like hyper powered magic and then like really cool cards and so it gets a lot of kind of undeserved hate ixalan you know i agree was boring but also gets doubled down on the dislike of it because a lot of the you know cards just don't really get a chance when you're stacking up against the various uh left like the 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 cards from uh, Kaladesh that managed to not get banned. So I, I I am worried. Like, my worry is, like, Kaldheim is a cool set that is going to be a victim of this, like, some mm-hmm. amount of historical revisionism that just comes from, like, being a weaker set following more powerful sets. Right. But, I, I mean, the, a lot of the cards are objectively cool and neat mm-hmm. designs. So like, all relevant. Yeah. And uh, I think maybe a difference this time is it wasn't just one block. It was actually an extended period of time that spanned several blocks this time. So it mm-hmm. might, Kaldheim might be better off for that because people just remember like, oh yeah, it was just this period of time where like all of the sets were really powerful. It has nothing to do with Kaldheim or whatever. And maybe they'll give Kaldheim a better shot. I, I do think we just basically have to wait until all of those sets cycle out of standard and like all of the effects of it on modern legacy or historic or what's pioneer. I don't know. Do people still play that? No, Um, but my joking aside is I think we're just gonna have to see like all of the really big problem cards get phased out and sort of just start from a new clean slate and Mm -hmm. hope it's good and hope, you know, COVID is eradicated by then too, because you know, the vaccine vaccinations honestly are not going well from what I've seen and what I've read, which is kind of crazy because we have the vaccine is just not is not getting out to the public, which is kind of crazy. If you think about it, that aside, I just hope those two things coincide and we finally get to some semblance of what I would like to play competitively. And, you know, if that doesn't happen for me, fine, I'm fine. I can not play like high level match again that's fine i just hope the next generation has it better off you know <laughs> whatever however good magic is like immediately following like the resumption of paper tournaments oh yeah like however whatever's going on in those formats we're just going to lie to ourselves and convince ourselves that like it's fantastic <laughs> so like whatever sets are out at that point are i believe going to be the the beneficiaries of some positive historical revisionism at that point like it was fantastic hey hey you don't know i might be married by that point and i'm not allowed to go to tournaments anymore you might be married we might be married because it might be three years from now i'm not writing that off for any of us i'm not writing off the chance of us finding a soulmate because we're not playing magic every weekend or whatever (laughs) you know like i have some optimism for y'all I don't know if you have optimism for me. That's fine. <laughs> but I'm just saying, like, we don't know how long it'll take. And maybe maybe you have lost the desire to actually go somewhere. I actually foresee what will happen to me is I'll go back to the first event, go, like, 03, and be like, oh, I want to go home right now, but I can't because it would cost me, like, $150 to change my flight. I'm like, oh, this sucks. And then then that's actually the end of it for me. Because all of the GP buys are gone, you know, SCG, the the first SCG events, no one's going to have buys, obviously, because, or maybe they actually do take the last leaderboard that was on record for them and let those people have buys, and like, I'll those people have are buys. Accepted. 
like obviously I could actually see that happening and I don't I don't actually fault them for doing it right like that would be reasonable obviously I wish I would have buys and SCGs because I think they're never going to put buys back in GPs and I understand that those last few months when COVID actually hit where GPs were being held were supposed to be the last few they said they were done and no one can really fault them for saying that they're done now right like the, the instant GPs come back I expect zero buys for everyone yeah they serve a purpose in the scg tour which is to put their top players in positions where they can have regular coverage of them it's like their marketing yeah it's like a marketing thing wizards never use the buys for any real purpose actually gps no there there was a reason do you want me to tell you the reason historically speaking sure so scath elias uh inventor of the pro tour it's like yeah we're gonna start this gp circuit and then someone asked him what's the incentive for pros to come these two events and he thought about it for a while and he's like okay what if we give them buys based on how good they are the buys were basically his way of giving them money without giving them money Mm -hmm. if that makes sense you're giving them equity but you're not actually giving them money so that's that's actually where the buy system originated for grand prix i know this because i've read a lot of the historical magic like books or whatever as as so much as you can do i was not at wizards when all this stuff was actually being discussed but i've read a lot of interviews and stuff like that i find it really interesting that that was their solution because i think in most other sports or competitions buys are rarely given out like it's it's a very rare thing and i think in those other events to get the pros to show up they actually do give them money instead so there's it, it's it was at that point i think an incentive but now i think wizards is like yeah we don't need to do that we can get away without doing that well yeah they, i mean even with buys they removed most of the purpose for a pro player to be at a gp right so. exactly so you're really just there if you want to play now yeah and some of the pros will still want to play like I, i'm sure reed will be thrilled mm-hmm. to play i mean i if it's a legacy, I'll probably still show up. I have no interest in showing up to like a random standard GP in like Oklahoma City or something like that. Now, I didn't really want to go to Oklahoma City before, regardless. Like, no offense to people in Oklahoma, I'm sure it's a fine state. It was so inconvenient to like fly to some of those locations. Um, I'm I'm spoiled. I'm used to getting direct because there's like three or four airports around here in the Washington D.C. area. If I could not get to somewhere direct, I was basically just not going to go most of the time <laughs> the, the price of the ticket was actually less relevant to me than how inconvenient it was to get there right it because having a, a connection means that instead of it being you know a total of two hours it's now a total of like five hours to do this thing. Uh, yeah so. screw that obviously for international flights i know like okay i can't really do that unless the, there's very few like direct international flights actually one of the most common ones which I don't know if it still exists, was actually Dulles to Beijing, straight shot, 16-hour flight, no stops, which is kind of crazy. But like, how else can you do it? Is right. U.S. to China, capital to capital. That's a really popular flight. I don't know if it still is. It might not even exist right now because of regulations, but, it, you know. I would be highly surprised if you could fly straight to Beijing right now. I agree, but I maybe it's limited to just very special like officials or whatever you know i i don't really know 
obviously in a few years, I think they'll try to put that route back in because it was like a really important one for a lot of business people. Well, I probably still won't be going to a ton of Chinese GPs even at that point, but probably yeah. pretty convenient to the people who have other reasons to go to China. So I was I was invited to go to like a high level Chinese legacy event a few times, but the problem mm -hmm. is it's like my Chinese is not that good. In fact, it's like barely functional is how I would describe it. And also like I think it's just culturally different to play magic in different countries. It's like a different uh setup. Like obviously the game is like pretty much the same, but people will like do things you're like, what are you doing? I don't know. And you then you just realize that's how they handle like a life total change or whatever, instead of how we do it in the United States. It's it's just like a sort of a culture shock, you know, in mm -hmm. some sort of ways. Uh, I remember the first time I played Magic in China, I was trying to curse scroll something. Now, the real issue is I don't know all of the names of every Magic card in Chinese, <laughs> so it's not the easiest. I was playing Mono Red. My friend uh, had to let me shoe haze like Red Deck wins from PT Columbus or whatever. So I'm like, curse scroll your creature. And they're like, okay, what are you naming in Chinese? I'm like, I'm like, oh shit, how do I do this? Um, <laughs> so what, I actually knew that they could read English. So I just wrote down the English name of the card and put it face down and then revealed my card, like the random card, and then showed them the card I'd named. And that worked well enough. So uh, you just have to think about that sort of stuff. But, you know, like, Legacy at its core is a complicated format. If you're playing Legacy or Vintage overseas and you're like, okay... I want to waste your fetch and response to your fetch daze your spell. That's not the easiest thing to communicate if you are not fluent in the language, you know? Yeah, you have to, like, visualize the stack, and it can be hard for... And, like, I think a lot of, like, even, like, an, an opposing English player might not understand what I'm trying to do. It just gets worse with the language barrier, I think. If my Chinese is not fluent, which I definitely think it is not fluent, and my accent's terrible... Last time I was in China, people thought I was Korean, and I'm not, because <laughs> my my accent is so bad. Oh, that's horrible. It's my fault. Like I I could have practiced more when I was growing up, and I didn't want to. I didn't want to go to Chinese school on Sundays because like kids don't want to go to school ever, you know. And yeah, now definitely I, not on Sundays. Yeah, I like kind of regret that as an adult, but not enough to like spend. I I spend a little bit of time every day trying to like learn stuff and try to work on it, but. It's so much harder when you're older to like adjust your brain or whatever. I yeah, I, wish I, could. I definitely regret not working on Spanish when I was a kid. It would yeah, have been very course. nice to actually grow up bilingual and and do that then. And now it, I just feel guilty for not being able to speak Spanish. But I, yeah, uh, I think that's where we're at now. I think a lot of the like um, dual culture American kids have regrets about that now like to all of you podcasters listening if you're like below 10 and you have the ability <laughs> to do it just do it you'll it sounds cheesy but you'll be happy about it i think when you're like 32 36 you know how old we are yeah and and you know keep keep practicing piano because it's actually really fucking cool to be able to play piano when you're in your 20s or 30s that's one thing oh I yeah no the, the girls will love it you're trying to pick up girls and you show them you can play piano they'll fucking love it everybody loves it man you can yeah pick me up if you can play piano you have a guitar case and they'll ask you if you play guitar and you open it and it's a keyboard 
or a guitar. <laughs> oh, be sure, even better. <laughs> I'm just gonna bring back the like unholy '80s instrument amalgamations. Everybody <laughs> loves these, right? Maybe from nostalgia, no other reason. <laughs> yes. Well, I don't have any idea what percentage of that episode was vintage and what percentage of it was nonsense. Not, not that much, but enough that uh, if you want to fast forward through it, they'll get my explanations of what yeah. I believe the top five vintage decks are. There's there's like other fringe decks, but they don't show up that often. Um, I, I mean, I showed you the Goblin P.O. deck as a joke, <laughs> but I think that's probably closer to real than it looks. But I kind of suspect that just playing the goblins by itself without the PO package is actually better. This is a, a paradoxical outcome deck that also has like a goblin, goblin recruiter based, like, you know, combo with conspicuous snoop and stuff. So, yeah, it turns out recruiter snoop made the deck a lot easier to kill with. If you play a turn one recruiter and you have three red men on turn two, you can basically kill your opponent by uh, first you cast recruiter, you put snoop, uh, torch courier. And then Kiki Jiki underneath it. Then on your turn two, you play Snoop, use your third red to play Courier, sack Courier targeting your Snoop, which gives it haste. Then you just target itself with the Kiki ability however many times you want. Then you Kiki your recruiter and go get Swing Gang, Lieutenant, or Mog Fanatic, depending on whichever one you feel is cooler. And then they're dead. So, yeah, Goblin Recruiter is kind of a broken card. It's not legal in Legacy, so that's why you don't see that stuff. I think it's it kind of attacks from a weird angle, but ironically, uh, Grafdigger's Cage sort of solves the problem for one turn, but then if they get to untap with the Snoop, you still die. So it doesn't actually solve the problem. Is what I would actually say. Right, right. Because we're not we're not casting Muxes here. We're just comboing with yeah the top card of our library. The top which card we of our library to put into play. Yeah, the 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 other ability on Confectio is Snoop, which people. Uh, it's kind of an abusable one in a lot of way. Um, mm -hmm. You you saw it on Skill Borrower way back skill, when. That's, that's the card I was trying Nobody to actually saw it on Skill Borrower. It's in the name. It says Skill Borrower. What do you know? When I saw that card, I'm like, oh, that's so cool. It's borrowing the skills. It was really cool, but With it, creatures. it was did or not splash in constructed magic. <laughs> yeah, but uh, conspicuous Snoop obviously a little bit more pushed and like actually does what you want to do because of Goblin Recruiter and. I know you've seen it with Bloggart, Harpinger, and Modern. I think it turned out that that deck wasn't quite good enough. It's really close, I think, on the all, on the whole. The fact that you need your 2-2 to live, and like people play so much Disruption, and really the cards in the deck are just not very good by themselves. It was kind of the nail in the coffin for that deck in Modern, I think. But uh, Vintage, maybe you see someone play it. I wouldn't be surprised. It has a lot going for it that's nice, which is I think it can compete with Dredge on a speed axis. And mm. the cards that Dredge normally plays are not that good versus it except for Forcible, but the deck plays a lot of Cavern of Souls, so it's just like, okay, you have these forces. Turn one, Mox Ruby, Cavern, Name Goblin, Recruiter. Oh, you can't do anything? Great. Let's, let's set up my kill. If you can't do anything about it this turn, I highly doubt you can do anything about it next turn. And even if they can, they're like force of willing a torch courier, like is the best that they can do in just buying a turn, which may be enough. But well, actually, if the yeah, the if the torture gets forced, it only buys them a turn, and then like, and then you have to go to the postboard games where goblins gets to like shave down on their bad cards and like side in like four lines or whatever. You're not thrilled about that. Uh, other thing is, I think 
Thorn of Amethyst is not good versus you, which is restricted, but that's like upside. Trinisphere is like annoying, but not the end of the world because you can just do your thing by paying three mana for your recruiter, three mana for your snoop, then they're dead. You play like a pretty high land count, and um, I don't know, like you can play a card like Goblin Trashmaster for shops, and that's probably like an all star if you really want to. <laughs> like that's you, you've seen that card in Historic. Imagine how much better it is when all the high impact permanents on your opponent's side are only artifacts and you get to trade all of your one ones for their stuff it's it's pretty darn powerful after um, after all of this i'm checking my messages to see if you sent me your what i would play this weekend to see if it is a goblin recruiter based combo deck. no it's, it sounds, i haven't sounds like sent you're it yet on board with this plan no i would i would play an updated version of tinker breach i think all for right, forward tinker right. breach which is oh. boring but i think it's super effective my friend played the ptq he went seven two he said he got Vintage twice, which, you know, obviously if you play nine rounds of Vintage, you're going to get Vintage at some points. Yeah, it's when I was playing it, I got a little frustrated because it, like, I'm not very good at Vintage, obviously. It's like one of my first times playing the format. Mm -hmm. But occasionally my opponent would just, you know, recall it and then kill me. I'd be like, oh, right. I guess that just happens. I felt like I was good, in good shape. Uh, I think <laughs> uh, depending on what deck you're playing, that actually doesn't happen that often, but obviously it can happen. If you're playing something like uh, Dredge or Goblins, I think it's way more likely to happen to you, and it'll also feel way more frustrating. But yeah. what, when you decide to register Dredge, you know that's what you're in for sometimes, that you will lose to a fast combo deck, because, well, are you really allowed to Morgan Hand that has Bazaar and a Dredger? No, because that's what your deck does. Are you actually allowed to Morgan Hand with a Bazaar? No, even if it, even if it doesn't have a Dredger. Actually, in some ways, I think the Bizarre Force of Will and Archimiba hand is better than Bizarre Dredger X hand, you know, mm. because it just gives you more insurance versus getting vintaged. Yeah, that makes sense. Anyways, those are my thoughts on vintage, I guess. And, you and know, assorted I, other topics. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Many thoughts. Uh, I, I do think the format is good uh, and it's fun to play. I do understand why you don't see every high-level event being vintage. Uh, <laughs> I think that might lead to people getting tired of the format a little bit faster. Same this for Legacy. Be one of the highest, like, certainly, like, one of the highest value vintage tournaments. You know, I mean, certainly there were, like, vintage tournaments for power and stuff like that, but to have an actual, like, cash tournament on Moto in vintage, like, that, mm -hmm. that is pretty rare. So kind of neat to have that going on. Yeah, and I I think I saw the leaderboard. There are quite a few names I do recognize. I think they're they're raring to go. They're they're ready to compete and show that they practice. They know the format. They're hoping their experience will carry them through or their deck selection. And I'm I'm really excited to see that. Um, I I, I especially think these playing the like blue Xerox combo decks versus the blue Xerox control decks is very tricky and intricate it could actually go further i do think the controlling decks are slightly more favored because they don't have to draw cards like brain freezer whatever you know like brain freeze is a bad card don't get me wrong you don't really put it in your deck until it kills your opponent you you actually don't want to draw it until it kills your opponent <laughs> more accurately so i think we'll see that dynamic and you know shops really powerful deck ravager shops mirrors i think are really really interesting it's closer to what you would see like as affinity mirrors, I think, in modern when that was a thing. 
where there's a lot of like combat damage and knowing when you're allowed to attack, what to attack with, knowing when you have to slow down and try to hope to draw more threats or whatever and try to trade off. And I think especially Phyrexian Roker makes it a lot more interesting than it otherwise would normally be because you can revoker something that might be killing you. Like, suppose your opponent does choose to put Steel Overseer in their deck. Oh, I don't have an answer, but I have a revoker. Okay, I'll revoke that. Then they play something like Walking Ballista, and you're like, oh, shit, I could have played around that. But, you know, it it gets complicated. And I, I think that part of Ravager Shop Smears is not given credit to. Golos Stacks on Golos Stacks, well, that's not the type of magic I like to watch. Maybe we <laughs> likes to watch it. What's going to actually happen in those mirrors, I think, is whoever gets the Golos first is favored. Because what you do is you get Caracas. Then that can go get Inventor's Fair. Then you can Fair for Crucible. Then you can replay the Fair every turn. Assuming you have enough mana. And that that gets out of hand not that quickly. It's like a seven-turn cycle to go through your entire deck. But eventually it prevents inevitability in the fact that you can get every good artifact from your deck and just like prison them out. This is only really a plan in the super prison version of Golos Stacks. In the combo version, you don't typically see that set up. Like the the watching kind of prison mirrors style, those those aren't super fun to watch, just at a general <laughs> level. They're yeah. just really fun to play and figure out. Oh, sure, sure. I, I, I think you would appreciate that, and I think you would be relatively okay playing a Stacks mirror versus someone else, even though obviously you can still get vintaged. Because well, yeah. fast, that's a, that's a danger, yeah. Yeah, um, but uh, yeah, sometimes those mirrors get weird too. Because there's actually different ways that you can build that deck. We actually saw Reed make the finals of one of the like actual, not the showcase qualifier, but the one that it qualified for. He made the finals and lost to Justin Gennari. I am actually level one, but he played a more aggressive version of Golos stacks. It still had Golos. But also had Foundry Inspectors and Stone Goyle Serpents as well. Hmm. And sometimes you'll see that weird hybridization, especially when it's a player like Reed who understands, oh, I don't want to go full out prison. I want to play more Jun style. And how do you play more Jun style? Well, you put good, efficient threats into your deck that also do something else. Stone Goyle Serpent, I think, is a super, super good card. So I'm not surprised to see Reed do well with that style of deck. Though I, I think sadly I don't think Reed plays any of these and you know that's fine. But I, I would I would love to watch him play one of these. Yeah, no, we have not had Reed in any of our tournaments, but no, it, I, it I don't think you're likely to do nice so. To see. I, I think he has so many other commitments on his plate yeah, that yeah. even if you gave him a free invite, he probably still wouldn't have time, unfortunately. But you know, um just thinking about how you can adjust decks and what you're like to see and great players, I'm I'm looking forward to that, and, you know, go stacks. You'll see some of it. Leylines, Helms, Mirage Mirrors, Dark Depths, some without. I, I think you're more likely to see the combo version, because I think that's been on the uptick lately. Well, I'm excited to see what people show up with. Uh, definitely will be a very different experience from any of the tournaments we've run so far, but it should right. be pretty cool. Jarvis, where can people find you? on social media or elsewhere on the internet or anything like that well i do stream magic the gathering uh, two to three times a week depending on my mood uh twitch.tv slash i also do post on twitter sometimes snarky comments sometimes uh links to youtube vods i've posted twitter dot 
com slash jkyu06. Uh, also, technically, I have a Discord, but you can find that through the Twitter and Twitch. Cool. What if people want to, you know, learn how to cantrip? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, watch watch, watch the Twitch, right? That'll... Yeah. <laughs> that'll, that'll do it. That'll do it. I am on social media as well. I am tweeting from at CCR underscore Grindcast. Lee is on Twitter, too. I'm at Lee McLeo. If you want to lend us some support, head over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash mtggrindcast. Tune in to our coverage of the Vintage Mana Traders Tournament this weekend, uh, starting at 10 on Saturday, twitch.tv slash mana traders. That's all I got for today. So yeah, thanks to everybody 10, so much for listening. 10 o'clock Eastern. And thanks so much, Jarvis, for helping us out here. Too. Yep. Yeah, thank you, Jarvis. Glad to be here. That's it for us. Have a great week. <laughs>